Howdy! Something a little bit different today for this episode. I chat with three first-time designers that I met at San Diego Histocon. We spoke with Taylor Schuss, designer of Stonewall Uprising, Justin Ficino, designer of Seljuk Byzantium Besieged, and with Nonbreaking Space, designer of Cross Bronx Expressway. That I didn't get a chance to ask you when we were out in uh, San Diego, but uh, your, so your first published game, Stonewall Uprising, uh, recently released through Catastrophe Games. Uh, what was the most challenging part of tackling that design? Um, you know, I I will actually say the the twofold answer there is one, um, handling the art. There's a lot of art in the game. It's a deck builder, so there's a lot of cards that are, you have unique images, which Catastrophe was really good at accommodating the amount of, like, you know, unique people I wanted in the game. But showing those people in a certain light, and ideally, and, you know, these are all pe- real people who live lives, not just, like, a concept. Um, and and kind of navigating what was too much, what was too little, make those protesters angrier, you know, like, weird... <laughs> weird things where you you see a piece of art and you go well there wouldn't be a pride flag in the 60s so i have to like remove a pride flag from my game it feels weird because the pride flag wasn't made till 78 i mean it's kind of strange right when you have a game about you know gay rights queer civil rights um and then the the other half was like managing expectations and i know uh, amville's talked about this with like this guilty land and whatnot but it was just about getting people to understand like you know, this isn't just a really fun gay game with rainbows and stuff, and about how happy everything was. That 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 history is filled with some unfortunate events, uh, to put it mildly, and they happen continuously and are still happening. <clears throat> so to, to expect the game to be full of sunshine and rainbows, while cute and cool, I like those things. Uh, not what happened uh, historically speaking. And so managing people to understand that, because most people are very, they don't have, they have like the broadest understanding of what the history was like. Um, And so just getting people to understand, like, no, this is, you know, there's some dark stuff that happens and always happens. You can't even get away from it in the game because it's so overarching. You know, it's not like, oh, if they don't play this card, no, 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 it's going to happen. Just how bad is it going to get? And I, I think for a lot of people, that's really uncomfortable. I think that's totally fair. My game is not for everyone. And that's something I had to embrace pretty early. Um, and I think getting people to understand that is kind of paramount to um, having them like walk with me on the path to, to accepting the game's pitch broadly. I can imagine it's pretty daunting to be tasked with, hey, Taylor, you're going to make the Stonewall game, right? <laughs> the one <laughs> That that we can buy. <laughs> the, I mean, I want there to be more. Of I course. want there to be more. I've said this a number of times, and I'd love to see. Like, I I know, so I've been pitched like a hundred times on like, I I call it, um, gay pandemic, where it's just like you set it during Stonewall, and you just have pandemic, and it's like the Stonewall riots, three days, three nights actually, um, in June, uh, nineteen sixty nine. You could totally do that. That sounds cool. I just, I I just didn't find it compelling to work on right like that that was that was an interesting pitch but ultimately um it wasn't really caught my interest you know the larger history the larger stakes 
the larger stage really drew me to them because they're so much more important than just that one night. And I, I do personally think any big event could have become Stonewall. We just happen to have Stonewall as our thing, right? But, you know, it was bound to happen. Those groups were organizing for the last, like, ten years. It was just a matter of time. It, it's always difficult when making historical games what events do you portray as inevitable versus which events you portray as being uh, the right conditions were, were met, like at that, you know I mean, at the right point in time. Um, but I, I would agree with, with that assessment that, that there was an inevitability uh, given the frequency of raids and just kind of like the piling of, of grievances and things like oh, that. Yeah. How would you describe the player feedback to the experience of playing as the man in Stonewall? Uh, I mean, the most common pieces of feedback I get are different levels of discomfort. Um, I had players say they feel nauseous. I've had players say they actively don't want to win the game for the first time in their lives. I've had players say they feel like horrible people. Um, And I've also had a couple players say, uh, you know, just playing cards is the game. So, you know, there's no, like, you know, not everyone feels very discomfort discomforted by the game. Most people do, though. I, I find the game experience, the game feel that, that I was able to kind of kind of angle in uh, is specifically tailored to make that player feel uncomfortable and bad about their choices, no matter what choices they're making. Because um, the man is supposed to feel oppressive and invasive and, um, you know, like a jerk. And Pride is just kind of trying to do their own thing. And they just keep getting whacked around by this other player constantly like a pinata it's not cool and um and i'd say that's the most common piece of feedback i hear it's just wow i feel like a bad person and then i i ask players to reflect on that uh uh, broadly and it's it's i think it's counterintuitive when i tell people that whoever plays the man is probably going to go through the most um like emotional turmoil they would expect to be pride i find most people expect pride to be like you know, the harder one to play, but the man player, not literally, but has to walk through all these steps. I'm like, wow, all my cards are me being a jerk. Every single, there's no card where I'm doing a good thing for anyone. I'm just being an asshole. And I go, yeah, you are. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, it, it's, it's probably really challenging within, you know, with any kind of design. Um, and, and I, I do this as well. Like, where I, I create a player role that folks are not specifically going to be super jazzed about taking in a game for a long period of time. Um, but that's typically the role that's a little bit more informative, I guess, within the framework of the design. And um, probably the one I, I think about the most, like when I'm designing, like from a starting point, like how is this going to play? What is this experience going to be like? Um, I was just kind of curious because I know, you know, and we're recording this in the wake of the Colorado spring shooting. And there's this feeling of, I can understand players voicing discomfort over taking unsavory player roles, but there's something to be said for games. It's just like, I don't really care about your comfort that much when we're making a game about this particular subject, because in the scheme of things, you know, uh, players having an issue with it because they're empathetic toward the community that's affected. Um, and they don't have the privilege of, you know, living without a threat to their health 
their safety, their security, things like that. And I understand that games yeah. are, you know, supposed to be fun. And and maybe some games like The Cost aren't supposed to be as much fun. Or maybe, you know, it's it's a little bit more of a, a thinky yeah. kind of feeling fun and it's a little bit more of a we're willing to challenge ourselves, I guess, like in a certain kind of medium. Um, but have you noticed that with some of the other games you've been designing, like you mentioned, this uh, role-playing game project that you're taking at PAX Unplugged with uh, Sacred Band, with, with any of your other designs, do you notice like a recurrence of like these kinds of roles that are a little bit more challenging for players to take um, versus some of the other games that you've designed? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I think broadly, I've noticed the trend. It's a, it's like a, it's like an undercurrent, right? An undercurrent of games where there are more challenging roles. I mean, you think about games like John Company, where you're all <laughs> bad. You know, I, I, I like, like I really like Infamous Traffic as well, and you're mm -hmm. all bad. Like the game is, there's no qualms about how bad you are when you're playing that game. You are just a jerk. You are the bad guys, no question about it. You know, you're smuggling opium into China, and you are desperate to get as much opium into China at as high a price as possible. There's no... zero middle ground there. Um, and I, I find that conceptually, um, those games, I because they're more challenging inherently, they they feel different to work on, and they feel different to talk about, right? When I, when I make a a Euro game or something, and I'm like, oh, I turned the blue cubes into three red cubes, and they give me points, and, and that's cool. I mean, I, yeah, I, I like that. I play a lot of games. Some of them are really, really silly and, and trivial, um, and I don't mind that at all. But it is nice to once in a while sit down and play a game that's telling a larger story, it's telling a larger narrative about things that actually do matter and can be informative. Um, and, I mean, I've had a lot of people walk away from my thing saying, wow, I never, I never heard of these people, you know. And the hope is that maybe they look some of them up or they, they do some reading. I mean, it's not, you know, I don't think I'm going to turn everyone into a passionate advocate who's going to, you know, know all the details. But even if they, you know, read a book or read a Wikipedia article educating themselves a little, bit by bit, you know, that, that to me feels like a win. Um, and it's not something you're going to get out of, uh, like, Concordia, right? And I love Concordia. But, you know, like, the theme's pretty whatever. Uh, final question. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, a couple of the projects that you've got coming up? I know um, you mentioned your uh, role-playing uh, prototype uh, that you're working on, as well as I know a little bit about a game you're working on with a co-designer who... I don't know if I'm comfortable saying his name on this podcast. I think he gets a lot of mentions. It's it's fine. Um but yeah, either of these projects you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll throw out some things. So I'm, I'm kind of uh, lightly work. I mean, there's not a lot of like, man, I, I'm not. I'm just not used to working on something so, so much less tangible, like like a role playing game. I find it hard to work on. It's 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 odd to 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 mess with. Um, but yeah, I'm working on uh, a light role playing game set during the AIDS epidemic. It's supposed to be very sad. And, and pretty pretty quick and light. It's not rules-heavy by any means, but it's a lot more narrative-based. It's a two-player experience. Um, and it's, um, yeah, we'll see where that turns out. I'm probably going to be trying to pack some Unplugged in a week or two. <laughs> um, and uh, then I, 
I currently have the Sacred Band, which I which I've which is a co-design of me and Joe Schmidt. Um, that is, uh, it's about the Sacred Band of Thebes, who were um, a band of three hundred warriors in, in ancient Greece around like four hundred BC, three fifty BC in that range, and they were really good at beating up the Spartans and being really gay because they were one hundred fifty pairs of male lovers, on top of being really good fighters, like wildly good fighters. That's a, like a two-player cooperative deck builder. Um, with some, like, the mind-esque elements going on. Um, and, uh, and then I have a, a, a new design that I'm kind of tinkering with. Um, and right now it's about the space race. Theme might change, eh, you know. Um, it's weird. The theme is the least compelling part of this game. But it's taking, like, some of the ideas that Stonewall had with deck building, right? Because in Stonewall, you should have your own separate market. And in this game, the market is an I-cut-you-choose Thing where you flip cards and then one player cuts and the other player chooses and it, and it rotates every round, right? And so I was like, what conflict? Could we all use the same tools? Ah, get into the moon. All right. And um, I quite like the mechanisms I'm, I'm mocking with and stuff, but man, that theme is just okay. <laughs> it's just fine. It's just a solid C. <laughs> um... So, I mean, the problem is, like, the space race really captures a lot of imaginations, and it is, it is inherently cool and different. So I'm not sure where that's going to go thematically, but I, I, I like the game quite a bit, and it's it's built a lot off the bones of where Stonewall takes deck builders. Like, it's a two-player thing, and, and you're fighting over different areas and stuff like that. So that's kind of the projects that I'm working on that are at least feel reasonable. Are you finding it a little easier to work without thematic constraints at the start of a design for a change? Well, that's what I'm used to. That's that's my normal. That's my like typical thing. All these other games I've mentioned, they are abnormal. They are the outliers in my design. And it's funny because most of my games are like cube generic cube thing like 7 and I just like play around with some ideas or something. Um, until eventually a theme happens. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah sure, it's about the Ice Age. I, um, but, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, the, like, st- it's funny, because Stonewall and, and, all the, and all the games I mentioned, like, like, it's Elk, um, they happened because, like, like, four or five years ago, I thought about, what would a game about, you know, the gay civil right, what would a game about Stonewall be like, right? And I, then I thought about it for, like, three years, <laughs> Just, like, in the back of my mm-hmm. mind, percolating. And uh, then during the pandemic, I, I finally was like, oh, maybe that could work. And then I, you know, like, two months later, I had, like, a game. That's not, that's rude. It's not fair to all my other games. And, um, and then, and then the Sacred Band was because Joe played Stonewall and then wanted to co-design with me. And had he was like, we could have a topic that really fits it. And, you know, the AIDS epidemic game only exists because they did a ton of research on the 80s and the AIDS crisis. So, I mean, I, you know, it's not that I didn't know any of it, but I didn't know quite the wealth of information I have now. And so they've all stemmed. And then the Space Race game is because I made Stonewall and I like the mechanics, but I was like, I wonder if I could muck around with these some more and make, make something else. So they've all stemmed from that in some way. You know, I, I, I never started being like, I need to make a game about the AIDS epidemic. That'll be really sad. It was. It was. It was more like I read about it. I'm like, this is awful. There are games being made about about a lot of topics, and there's no games about this. And this is so important. 
I feel like something, so, someone should be talking about it at least. Um, and and then I tried like five different things, and none of them worked. And then I tried a role playing game, and that uh, it seems like it's it's going all right. So, um, you know, they've all stemmed from that in some way or another, and that was never my intent. It just like it just it kept walking in that direction. It kept being really really on brand. <laughs> so. It's, um, I mean, you know, like, a lot of my other prototypes are really generic themes that aren't, like, wildly interesting or exciting. And I like the mechanisms, but the theme is, like, sure, you know, why not? Uh, but here, I feel like they tend to be a lot more tied together, and that obviously connects on a deeper level with most people. I think that's really hard to argue. Um, so, I mean, you know, maybe it's just what I should be doing. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that designing for feel is very difficult, but when you do it right, you can really hit a, a wide breadth of people, because, you know, if, if you're being a jerk mechanically, if you feel like like a mean person through what you have to do, and people agree on that, it's hard to make a thematic argument you aren't doing those things. So, hey, Justin, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the Seljuk Empire and what led you to adapt the events of the First Crusade for for the Levian campaign series? Yeah, so, um, I, let's see, where do I begin with that? I think um, the, the, the main sort of inspiration for, like, tackling the subject material was I was, at the time that Nevsky came out, <clears throat> I played that game, like, four times in two weeks. Um, and I loved it. I thought it was just so unique. And as I was doing that, I also happened to be listening to the um, History of Byzantium podcast, um, which is a fantastic podcast. If if you haven't listened to it, it basically is sort of the unofficial sequel to History of Rome podcast, where it starts like literally right as History of Rome ends, and his goal is to take it all the way to 1453. But as Nevsky was coming out, I was listening to um, the episode that was like two hours long about the Battle of Manzikert, which happened in 1071. And um, as I'm listening to this episode, I keep in my head, I've got Nevsky fresh in my mind, and so many of the things that happened historically um, leading up to the Battle of Manzikert were perfectly modeled in Levian campaign. So the need for armies to have supplies, the difficulty in moving armies, the um, you know the various things that an army, challenges an army would face as they were trying to move around such a vast distance of land, using their feet and horses and transporting goods, and how the Seljuks would come in and steal a bunch of stuff and, and raid, and then try and get home, and the the, Byzant the Byzantine Romans would basically wait for them to do that to ambush them because they were slower. All of that stuff like came together in my head sort of like from a historical narrative perspective listening to that podcast, but also from like a game mechanics understanding from Nevsky. And I thought, wow, could this era be adopted for this system? Because obviously, as you know, when, Nevi when Nevsky came out, it was listed as Levian Campaign Volume 1. So it was very clear that there were going to be more. And I was got, started to get me excited about, oh, what could possibly, what could this possibly model? What historical setting could we go to? And so that was part of it. And then the other part of it was obviously after playing Nevsky, and if you haven't played Nevsky, the um, the Rus, they have a special uh, vassal that they can get that's uh, Kipchaks and Mongols, which are like these step horsemen that are <clears throat> so unlike any of the other units in the game. And, um, you know, when you bring them into play, you're like, what are these weird little pieces that have like these weird, you know, they have like no armor, you know, that they have this thing called evade. And, you know, as I was thinking about it, I was like, could you do a whole game about the dichotomy of sort of like your traditional armored sort of European style fighting force versus like a very quick moving archery focused, you know, mounted 
um, step nomad army and like what would that look like and I thought Levian Campaign was kind of like the perfect crucible to try and like smash all that together yeah in, in addition to um, kind of the as you mentioned specialized units like the Kipchak units um, what were some of the other unique changes you made to the system to better, better illustrate your subject matter yeah, so um, there were three big things. I, I basically sketched out this big design document that's like 10 pages before I even started doing working anything on the game. And I, in that document, I tried to outline not only the historical narrative, but also like mechanically, like what would you need to historically represent the unique stuff about the Byzantine Empire and the Seljuks. And, um, you know, there's a list of those things. Not all of them made it into the game because um, ultimately they ended up being fairly minor. But I think the big ones, um, you know, that sort of really change the way that you think about living in campaign would be things like the uh, Byzantine uh, Tamada, which were the, um, essentially, the Byzantine Empire was broken up into different military administrative regions, um, and in those regions you had uh, local levies and professional soldiers who were assigned to defend those regions um, in the case of raids or incursions from outside the empire. This was sort of like created during the um, Islamic, the rise of Islam and how they would come in um, and sort of attack the Byzantines. And so that sort of defensive um, logistics formation sort of persevered over the centuries. And and so when we get to the 1068, when the game starts, um, you have this, uh, you have the empire broken up into these different provinces. And so in the game, um, the the Roman player, the Byzantine Roman player, doesn't have intrinsic garrisons like you would have in other uh, Levian campaign games. So if you remember in Nevsky or Almoravid or whatever, when you go and besiege a, a fortified space, there's just a garrison that spawns in that location. Well, the Byzantine Romans don't have that. Their defensive garrisons are actually represented on the map as service markers, and those can be used by the Roman player in a variety of different ways, one of which is to garrison the uh, fortified spaces in their um, in their Tema, or their fortified, uh, uh, or their uh, military administrative region, um, and so using the and, and so the the key thing there is when the, if the siege is successful and it's either sur- the fortress surrenders or it's taken by storm, those um, units that are you know on the map and assigned defensively are actually eliminated from the game. And so as you play the game over the course of four years, um, you'll start to see the crumbling frontier defenses of the of the Byzantine Empire as those are used. You can also use them as the Roman player. You can levy them actually during the campaign phase. Um, so you don't have to wait for you don't have to wait for the sort of pre-turn um, levy phase. You can do it while you're on the march if you're if you have your uh, marshal, your commander leader. And they can also be used to defend against Seljuk ravaging, which is sort of like Good segue to talk about what the other side is doing. So it's a much more asymmetric game. The Seljuk Turks obviously they're coming from the east, um, primarily mounted and uh, their their whole victory scheme is based around ravaging and loot. So unlike in other Levian campaign games, and unlike the Romans in, in Seljuk, they don't score points by conquering territory. They are going to score points, obviously, ravaging the normal way. But they can also, if they can get the loot that they ravage from various areas, um, if they can hold on to that um, until the following winter and get it home safely, they can score victory points for that. And that's one of the prime primary ways that they score victory points. Um, and so there's this interesting interaction between the, the Turks wanting to come in and ravage a whole bunch and collect a bunch of loot and the Romans trying to stop them um, and not let them return home with it, but also trying to prevent those ravages in the first place using their their tomata, their frontier troops, to try and defend against those ravaging. And so, mechanically, the way it works is you roll, you, you get uh, when you ravage as the Turks, you can either do it with one command or two commands. And if you do it with two commands, it's like a normal ravage. But if you do it with one command, the Romans can try and assign one of their uh, thematic units um, to defend, you know, from the map. And if they successfully roll the protection, then the ravage doesn't occur. 
those are like the two big things. There's some other there's some other stuff as well. Obviously, we've condensed the game scale to be seasonal rather than 40 day turns, uh, just because of the time scale we're talking about. Um, lords, actually, there are specific lords on each side who can actually switch sides um, and join the opposing faction. Um, and so there's little touches here and there that kind of like sort of evoke the history and some of the historical events that happened as well. I thought your calendar was a pretty significant shift from the uh, other Levian campaign games. All, all two of them that I've played. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I was going to say, it was uh, omitting winter uh, in the way that you did and increasing the card plays during the remaining seasons uh, done more to give players agency, would you say, or was it to simulate the onset of extreme weather conditions in the Mideast during that period? Yeah, I, it was <clears throat> it was kind of all of the above. It was mostly that second one. So um, looking, you know, going back to that design document I put together, one of the things I also did in there was put a, a complete chronology of everything we know from all the sources that we have about what happened in the four years that led up to Manticurt. And, you know, one of the things I noticed was that there was very little activity happening in the winter. And that was because, uh, I don't know, if, if you've ever been to Turkey or you know the geography of Turkey, uh, especially in the east, um, which is where the game primarily takes place, it is extremely mountainous, extremely rugged. You've got the Armenian mountains in the east. You've got the Taurus mountains in the south. And so, um, you know, it's a very unforgiving place as the season starts to turn cold. And so that really limited the ability of, of armies to operate historically in those time frames. And so, you know, obviously... I've, I've already turned the game from a two-year affair into a four-year affair, you know, and I don't want the game to be take like two days, three days to play. And so it just made sense to kind of cut winter out and make it sort of um, an interphase uh, where, you know, essentially the armies would reset. So unlike other Levian campaign games, when you get to winter in Seljuk, you're forced to go back to your seat. And because both sides are coming from very far away to get to the map where the conflict area was, um, it almost serves as a reset. And so every year that you're playing the game, you're going to have this sort of uh, ebb and flow of forces where you're going to come into eastern Anatolia, you're going to fight and ravage and so forth, and at the end of it, you're going to go home, the Romans back to Constantinople to re-gear re and regather for the next season, the Turks to return their loot and deal with other things that are happening further east in the, in the Islamic world. Um, and so it just made a lot of sense um, to not have winter as a season where nothing happened. And then to, to your other point, you know, obviously condensing the time scale from 40 days to seasonal, you know, that obviously necessitated for just chronological purposes um, to have more cards in your command deck when you build it. And so um, looking at that, you know, I it was kind of a struggle because like you start to look, I mean, Levian campaign is somewhat abstract with how it handles chronological events. Like there's not a specific scale of, of you know, other than a 40 day like turn, like what one command card means, right? Like it, we, that doesn't necessarily represent one week or two weeks or three weeks. And so there's a little bit of leeway there to kind of like mold it how you see fit. And so what I basically did because we're tackling four years here um, across 12 turns is I looked at Almoravid, which um, had sort of been the guiding star to designing um, Seljuk. Um, and it was currently in design. And when I looked at it, I said, okay, you know, there may be different numbers of turns per seasons in Seljuk compared to Almoravid, but at the end of the game, if you played a full campaign, it's basically you play the same number of command cards. So chronologically, it made sense to kind of model it there because Spain and Eastern Anatolia are roughly the same geographical size, right? And so you get a sort of continuity, a consistency of, of what a turn means, what a command card means, and how much activity can possibly happen in a given period of time. So it's pretty close to um, what you would f the amount of activity you would find in Almoravid uh, across the same amount of time. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you'll run into too many... War gamers who are going to be like <laughs> so pedantic, they're going to count how far try to try to figure out what the average speed of this mounted army is, or something based on the number of commands they've played. It's like you should have been picking up some coin, or maybe <laughs> foraging around a little bit more, something like that. 
Of course, now that you've mentioned that, though, there will be a, that'll be like the first thread on Board Game Geek, right? Yeah, they're always there. They're always there. They're, just ignore them. That's what I do. <laughs> After a couple of games, they go away. They lose interest right. and move on to somebody else. Um, about how far in development are you with this title right now? Uh, pretty pretty far. So um, I've been working on it since basically the pandemic started. Uh, so what is that? Two and a half years now. Um, I've got a lot of playtesting under the belt. Um, the game, as as far as the design goes, is is basically in its final form, barring some balance tweaks here and there. And um, I'm still sort of every couple of weeks looking at the decks of events and and uh, capabilities and just seeing where I can fine tune make stuff a little bit more friendly to the players or make more sense with the design. So some small tweaks here and there, but I would say that generally I'm in sort of the um, <clears throat> intense playtest um, period of designing the game. Like all the pieces are there. It's not going to change too much from what it's at. The map is basically final at this point. So really it's just a matter of getting folks in there, um, especially folks who haven't either have a lot of loving campaign experience but are coming to the game and haven't played it before or tried it before, or new players who are new to loving campaign. And what I'm trying to do is get them to play each other, like you know, the new people against new people and experienced people against experienced people, just to kind of see the types of decisions, the types of things that they're doing, if there's anything that will break the game. The guy who's helping me develop the game in the Levian campaign um, Discord community, he, is, uh, he, he messaged me the other day and he goes, hey... I think I have a strategy with the Turks that might be unbeatable, but he won't tell me what it is. And so as soon as he gets some free time, we're going to go through and I'm going to have him use it on me to see what exactly he means by that. He's like, I'm not sure if it'll work, but like, I think it might. Um, and so, you know, that's obviously the, the play testing, you know, the, you find all the gremlins try and work them out. So Justin, they always want to show you. They never want to tell you. Like, Could you just type this up? <laughs> right. like, no, let me show you over the course of three or four hours. It's like, oh, that'll be fun. That'll be a good time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Are you still looking for testers for that, by the way? I am, yeah. Um, there is a um, there's a tabletop simulator module that um, anyone who can... I think it's public. It should be public. If you go to search through the modules and just search Seljuk, um, it should pop up. Um, and all the stuff is in the module, so even if you've never played before, the rulebook is in there, um, all of the player aids, all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, if anyone's interested in, in playing a, the game and uh, trying it out, testing it... Um, you can hit me up on Discord in the Levian Campaign Discord server or even on Board Game Geek in one of the other areas where we've talked about it in some of the other Levian Campaign game forum sections. And I'd be happy to send you the link <clears throat> for TTS. And I think we're going to try and get some more organized playtesting going on. Um, the game is pretty, in terms of other projects in Levian Campaign, it's pretty far along. I know that, um, you know, looking at potentially having it you know, publicly announced and like available on the P500 stuff soon-ish. Um, so I'm crossing my fingers for that. So it should be more accessible in the near future. Yeah. It's, it's always tough to plot that out. I feel like mm-hmm. with GMT, I think they use a sundial to like <laughs> figure out <laughs> everything is like, Oh, it's like a mind calendar. It's like a, it's a, little, it's a little sketch. We'll, we'll let you know when the shadow falls here and then maybe your game will come up. So yeah. Um, or, or like, you know, they have product on boats sitting out in the ocean and they don't know where the boats are. And it's just like one day you walk into the office and there's like 80 pallets of, you know, new games that have arrived from the manufacturer. It's been a wild couple of years, hasn't it? Just, yeah, that's right. Just super fun. Uh, so this is your first design, correct? It is, yeah. And I actually didn't even intend to start this as a design. I just kind of like, you know, when I was coming up with the concept here, I sent Volko a note and I was like, hey, this would be a really cool period to explore if you're planning on doing other games in the series. And he responded and he was just like, yeah, you should do that. And I was like, oh, I mean, okay, I guess I could give that a try. I mean, I've never designed a game before, so it's been quite an adventure. Um, I have immense respect for people like yourself and other people who design um, 
historical games, first of all, but historical games on subjects that are either not very well known or don't have a lot of sources on them. Because I would say that I spent probably the first five or six months doing nothing but reading and trying to geolocate places on a map that were mentioned in the contemporary sources of the 11th century that are completely named completely differently now or like we don't know where they were you know and just trying to dig up as much of that possible to get the geography right and the the chronology right and all of you know when you're talking especially in this period the turks didn't really have like a written a, a tradition of like written history and so like most of the contemporary sources that are from the 11th century come from arab historians which are they they are also kind of like who are these turkish people you know and so a lot of them are just kind of like very simple instructions for like the Arab court in like, you know, Iraq and Iran at this time. They're like, these are the Turks. These are where they come from. This is like some of the stuff that they like to do. So, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting to like have giant holes in the, in the actual historical record and having to like play detective and like look at different modern scholars and historians and like piece together, like what the picture is from what they are, the arguments they're making. Oof, Justin, I don't even think it's close. I think when you're dealing with subject matter, that's like 14th century and earlier, like just, that that's rough. It's just really <laughs> yeah. tough to to identify sources. Sometimes you come up with something that you want to include in a game, and you're like, "I think this is based off a poem. Can I do that?" That's kind of dumb. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, exactly. I don't have, well, I don't, there's not that much stuff. Yeah, well, so, like, yeah, I was, like, scouring stuff. I came across this, like, sort of apocryphal account, this sort of of Alp Arslan, the Turkic sultan at the time, and it was, like, he has the most glorious mustache. It is the the world's best mustache. It's so long. It is a thing of beauty. When he goes hunting, it is so long, he must tie it in a knot behind his head so that he can sight down his bow. And I'm, like... I'm going to use that, you know, that's going in the game. So there is a card in the game that makes his forage rolls easier. If you get that event, because his mustache is so glorious. <clears throat> you should, you know, I, I'm typically not a proponent of great men, uh, history, but I, yeah. I think great facial hair history is probably <laughs> worth noting in some way. If you've got something like that, or also right. I, I like when people have like prominent pets, people in power, oh, for sure. pets, like the pets of power, I guess like that, that's the pet- fun. <laughs> I think it was Boy, the Battle Poodle from the English Civil War. Uh-huh, yep, oh, yep. He yeah. deserves his own game, honestly. Yeah, gets his own card, he gets, like, his own little stat, and I, I just have to picture yep. this, like, toy poodle running around covered in blood on a battlefield. <laughs> it's just a little wild. Uh, yeah, I probably mean... Probably not all that it, realistic. But, but you know what, like, history is full of funny things like that, you know, and I, like, I think it's so cool when designers lean into sort of the humor, the tongue-in-cheek nature of some of that stuff that actually happened or who are real figures, you know, and put it in the game because it's always fun to have, you know, a nice laugh when you're talking about, like, the death of people, right? You're talking about conflict between people. Absolutely. Well, I hope that with this extra time that you've got before the game appears on the P500 and eventually gets lined up with, you know like in the print queue and everything, you'll have enough time to kind of iron out like how this mustache is going to work, how it's going to mm-hmm. affect his sights, <laughs> and mm-hmm. kind of incorporate all that info into the game as a nice little piece of chrome. Yeah, I'm going to see if we can do like a pre-order with like a tiny mustache comb for anyone who wants to like try and grow their own, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I always like that, and like those um, gentlemen's like dandy journal type things, like just like on, you know, essentially like how, how for grooming and like... Based on like how how to kind of like you know, do all that so stuff. You, I, so you I want really an 11th century 
Turkish beard. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> or, or rather like a how-to guide. I feel like there's a lot of wasted space in the playbook where we're just talking about, you know, it's a lot of conjecture yeah. about like events, people, affected communities, conflicts, yeah. historical buildup. We don't really get into the like meat and potatoes of everyday, you know, kind of grooming and hygiene. So Exactly. That's As in, really you know, like, it's like... Uh, like a like a highlighted box that's like as an aside your gentleman's guide to associated beard and mustache nodding yes yes precisely that yeah or maybe that's something for you to incorporate into next design do you have another design in progress right now or are you really just focused on this right now so i do i mean i i'm so i'm one of those people where like if you get me started on something and i don't finish it i will lose track and like go do something else and so i am trying so desperately to stay focused on this and get it across the finish line but i do have an idea for another um design that i want to do um that's sort of a smaller scale game about the pig war of 1859 which most people have not heard of but as someone who lives in i live in uh, washington state uh in the upper left u.s and um there's this really sort of little known, um, n- not a conflict because it never came to that, but almost a conflict where the the U.S. and the British almost came to to war over this tiny island between Vancouver and um, Vancouver Island and uh, Washington State, and about who owned it. And it started with a farmer's pig being shot by mistake by settlers of the opposing nationality. And um, it was this really tense moment where all of these it, all of these you know people were coming from Washington D.C. and from you know the uh, British government to like this island to like you know, basically stop there from being an outbreak of violence. And, you know, you had all these like famous civil war uh, personalities on the U S side coming up to this tiny Island where there were just like a couple farmers, you know, trying to like, you know, prevent, you know, fortifying their forts, but like trying to prevent out the outbreak of war. And so I think there's a really interesting war game there. One where it's like a war game where you're trying to not go to war because you would lose if you did that. So it's like, you know, you're trying to brinksmanship, trying to play one up on the other player without actually hostilities. So I've got some ideas for that. That would be like a, you know, a 30 minute kind of playtime, like smaller strategic game, um, you know, in the vein of something like a flashpoint or 13 days or something like that. So as soon as, as soon as Seljuk, if we can get it across the finish line, if people are interested, if it becomes a thing then I might pick that up and see what I can do with that. Cause I think it's an interesting period of history that like nobody knows anything about. So NB Cross Bronx Expressway is an upcoming volume from GMT's new Irregular Conflict series. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you mind describing it for listeners unfamiliar with it? Sure. It's uh, definitely an irregular conflict as it's looking at the uh, economic situation in the Bronx, focusing on the years of 1940 to 2000. And it's framed as a city builder, but definitely, definitely heavily inspired by uh, conflict simulations. And so it's looking at three players playing as the public community and private factions as they try and navigate the history that happens over the course of those decades to the, towards the benefit of the population that's living in the town. And at SD, I played a short cooperative scenario mm-hmm. um, that you kind of got us through with a couple fellow jerks uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was super impressive uh, but I could Thank see you. elements that reminded me of uh, Jane Jacobs books which I know you've mentioned before like in yep. some interviews and things um, and the design models vulnerable populations in underhouse communities in a really interesting way and it felt like a, a shell game in the context of, of um, your design where we were using community organizations and infrastructure to hide a problem more than the resolve one in some cases. Hmm. And I, I have to mention our our specific scenario was like a short cooperative one, which generally yep. isn't how the rest of the game 
plays out. I feel like we played the most uncooperative cooperatives <laughs> that I've probably played of anything. Um, does that? But does that? Um, I guess assessment of kind of how how um, sort of vulnerable populations are mm-hmm. uh, kind of portrayed in the game. Like, does that sound accurate to you? Is that is that? Intentional? Yeah, I think. I mean, it's definitely there's definitely some intent in terms of um, the representation of the vulnerable population on the game. Um, it's very much a big part of the design itself is that they are physical pieces in the game and a lot of what players are doing is just moving them around and shuffling them around and having conversations about, hey, how have I put this one over here and move that one over there, both the population and the vulnerable population. And whether or not these things are for the total good becomes very clear as those conversations progress. It's just like, what are you asking me for again? And how is that actually going to impact things? And then what it is that you actually end up do focusing on for the uh, more competitive scenario in terms of what your objectives are automatically sort of creates this conflict around how you have to handle the population, the vulnerable population against these other three factions to be able to achieve the things that you need. It's interesting because, like, I think about it not necessarily in terms of, like, a clean win condition is have the most points or have the most money. And it's probably the most common that you see in city builders overall. But the way that the game sort of scores or evaluates you is really based on how close you are to achieving your goals. And your goals are, you have a set, you, each player has a set of four goals. And those four goals are representative of what those factions idea of what a city is. And so you're really fighting over the idea of, a, of what the city should be, but you're utilizing real people um, as, your, as what's based, the basis of the evaluation. So um, as you can imagine, that can become uh, very contentious and get a lot of feelings. I'm, I'm glad that you can, I mean, it's always interesting to me to see after people have played it, um, what are the things that they're pulling out of it or like what are the things or the questions that they're having or like why am i doing this a lot of it a lot of times it's like wait why am i doing this or wait a second am i supposed to be doing this and it's like yes that's exactly how you should be thinking though i can't necessarily tell you whether you should or shouldn't be doing anything no it left a really strong impression i was i was taken with a lot of things in the design um some of which were mechanical but i I think one of the things that i've been thinking about in the past couple of weeks since playing it was um, how how challenging to me it would be to incorporate relatively abstract player roles and mm-hmm. to still make that kind of an impact with players, mm-hmm. you know, for players playing as... Institutions you know, rather than individuals. Rad, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, you know, to say public and, you know, private and community, it, it's, it's a little bit harder to embody that than, you know, when you're playing Here I Stand and someone's like Henry VIII like yep. they kind of get they're like yeah, I'm looking for an heir I'm looking for a divorce not in that order necessarily you know like you just you, you're kind of playing like a role that has it's, it's just there's a little bit more tangible to it yep. and while there's yep. plenty tangible on the within the game state um, mm-hmm. sometimes it's about that connectivity to our to our objectives and our player mm-hmm. roles and when there's something that's kind of abstract and broad do you do you find that that was like a, a big challenge within I think it, your design? It, it definitely was a challenge and I, like by example everybody when I when they 
if anybody knows anything about this um, story, what they'll know is Robert Moses. And so, um, oh, you're doing this game about the Cross Bronx Expressway. It must be Robert Moses has to be there. And he is there, but I wanted to make it very clear that this is not like the power broker game. You know, this is not the story of Robert Moses. And so the way that he shows up is not necessarily as a playable character, but the characters who he influenced and the players in the positions where he influenced and he comes onto the table and it's like, okay, now I understand <laughs> what the power, the power dynamics that came into play when Robert Moses was at the table because he's at the table now and I'm having, and I'm looking at you like this and I'm looking at you like that and wondering, are you going to do that or are you going to do that? Maybe I should do that before you get to do that. And that I think is um, the, it's sort of that, putting it in the in-between place as opposed to that direct place of how are you interacting with this history? Yeah, there's a lot of... It's always, it's always kind of a tangle when you're trying to explore how much agency you want to give players. Um, you don't want to give mm-hmm. them absolute... You know, when you're playing a Civ game, right? And, you know, well, <laughs> typical Civ game. It's, uh, I'm an immortal despot. <laughs> like a rule with an iron fist. <laughs> like a thousand years or something insane like that and then just like i get why that's fun you know after a shitty day at work or something (laughs) someone might be like oh this is a nice way for me to unwind um but it also doesn't really explore kind of like what the meaning is of a lot of your individual choices when it's so i I guess when you have like this sweeping power to abuse Mm -hmm. you know like Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. what what is and what you actually do right and Cross Bronx gives you a lot of opportunity to um, abuse, and I think that's actually yeah. one of the one of the more interesting things is that um, I think a, and it's a it's a bit of a commentary in terms of on gaming in general. But I think a lot of folk when they come to the game are going to try and abuse it as quickly as possible, and then realize that they lost the game. Right? Like that's basically sure. like they're gonna go, and because all the tools are there for the abuse, and the truth of the matter is, is that the history itself is one that doesn't turn out any like there's not really a clear way to say what happened and like i think somebody raised the question in terms of um what does disenfranchisement mean as a loss condition because the way the game works is if you are shipping too many of the vulnerable population through the jails into the prison system then you've basically disenfranchised the chunk of the population game over everybody loses and so I was asked the question about like what that represents, and I'm like, well, you, the truth of the matter is, is that's what's actually ha- that's what actually happened. The game didn't wasn't over. Life just continued on as they continued these abuses of just shipping people off to through the prison system. Um, and so I'm being nice to you by not, not allowing you to go completely overboard, <laughs> but you'll find that the way that the game sets you up. It's very easy to look at the conditions and say, well, I'm just going to do this and we'll see what happens. And, oh, look what happened. You disenfranchised the whole population and now you lost the game. <laughs> have you gotten a lot of pushback from playtesters? I guess a lot of. Have you gotten specific pushback from playtesters that has left an impression on you during this design process? Um, I definitely have gotten a wide range of feedback. And I think the this is – it all – the majority of the challenging feedback, I think, revolves around player expectations, which is coming from the whole history of board games and what you, when you sit down to the table, what you're expecting to happen. Um, the game very much does is 
just not going to fulfill that. Like if somebody is, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, oh, wow, Crossmarks Expressway, let me go get my city building power fix on. Um, I hate to break it to you, but this is not going to do that for you. But that's what like this, the genre of city building has sort of built us up for those types of expectations. And so um, even just in general, like victory conditions are, have built us up to be, has been, have been built up to be rewarding things. And so, when you have a game state that says maybe you don't want to go for that victory condition right now, um, maybe that's one that you'll wait for two more decades before you do it. Right? It's like it's just completely challenging. And actually, that's probably more of a hint than I've told anybody about the game. Is like, yeah, you may want to wait until you go for the. There's certain victory conditions in the game you probably don't want to try and get too soon, you know. And um, <laughs> that type of dynamic is one that it's going to be a challenge for people that just are like, okay, how do I win this game? And that's part of the reason why the scenario that you all were playing was the um, intro scenario is just sort of a co-op so that you can realize just the challenge in and of itself of playing it co-op, the challenge of doing what you need to do in this co-op situation before you like just go in and try and say, I'm just going to like spam my victory conditions and that's going to win me the game, right? (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, when you're in a competitive atmosphere, players are just more or less competing to see who was able to decipher, based on, like, the sequence of play, like, how they could quickly abuse the other players (laughs) toward toward their objectives, right? (laughs) And in a weird way, when you're playing something with with more of a kind of co-opetition or even just, like, straight-up cooperative um, kind of mindset there's a lot more of a sense of exploration. Like, let's pull levers mm-hmm. and see what they do instead, which mm-hmm. is ultimately what you want to see happen in the test, even though that's not the mm-hmm. spirit, apparently, of how many people play things. <laughs> even on the first time, which I found... I think I put a Twitter I put a Twitter poll up, like, a few months ago and asking people, mm-hmm. how many of you try to win the very first time you're playing a game? <laughs> like, was it, like, 70%? Just going all the wall, and it was, like... It was only like sixty percent of me, yeah, but it was yeah. just like that's that's high to me. Like yeah, that seems yeah. really high. And then I mean, know, if sixty like, percent of a table, <laughs> if you have sixty percent of the table that's trying to win on the first game that you're just learning, you know, you can already imagine what that feeling is like for those who are just like, yeah, I'm just trying to see what this thing is doing. Oh yeah, it's like uh, this is gonna be rough. Um, very sorry, you know. Um, and and sometimes then you just kind of you understand too, like why that's you give certain role player roles to Mm -hmm. experienced players. This was really nice because I thought that the objectives were pretty clear Mm -hmm. in the game. Um, But despite that, I still liked having that environment where I could see how different mechanisms interacted and created this Mm -hmm. um, really evocative um, ecosystem, particularly evocative for me, who I'm a little coin critical, apologies. But (laughs) it felt like really, like, like a like a little bit more of a lived in place than, than mm. a lot of these other coin games kind of inhabit where, mm. you know, you, when you look at a map, uh, seeing like, uh, how these, it's not just a matter of like what organizations are say in a, in a given, you know, like order or something, but it's also about like the combination of what in a specific locality is mm-hmm. in the space and mm-hmm. what types of outcomes that can produce. Um, mm-hmm. Would you mind describing a little bit the sequence of play? Because I think it's really innovative for, within that uh, framework. Oh, like I think you. you've done something really marvelous there. 
Sure, I can definitely give that description. So um, what's the most familiar is from um, the coin series is that the cards come with the eligibility order. So each of the event cards, there's one played at a time. They have an eligibility order that says which of the factions gets to do the thing first. Um, and then there's also a card that you're looking at, which is the card that's going to be next. So there'll be two cards at any time. Both of them will have an eligibility on it. When, you're, when it's time to act on a card, each player is choosing from four spaces in an action selection mode first before they actually take the action. So the eligibility is just for the selection of the spaces, which are act, event, react, and plan. Where act is allowing you to have an impact doing one of your faction-specific actions on a number of districts or a number of spaces on the board. Um, the event is going to have its own action or its own actions that can be taken, and then the react is being able to do one of your actions in one specific space on the board. Um, so that, and then the final one is plan, which allows you to not take an action for this turn, but to plan to take an action for the next turn based on seeing what that next card is going to be. And so in that way, each faction is going to choose one of those options, and then it's always going to flow in that in that order of act, event react and plan um no matter what no matter who was on the card it's really who's made the selection of those actions that get that order that's going to be executed in so you always know that it's going to be the reaction is going to come after the event the act is going to come before the event and then somebody's going to plan if there's planning because it's only a three-player game and there's four spaces that means that there's going to be empty spaces um and there's a good chance that the empty space that's going to be is the event space and if the event space is empty it's still going to happen so every single event card that hap that comes out in the deck is going to happen in the game. And the faction that has the first eligibility on that card is going to execute that if nobody else has made that selection. And so it's a way of just sort of like one strictly providing a sort of time sequence that's happening of like, oh, this and then this and then this and then this, where there's an action, there's an event, and then there's a reaction to both of those things always is going to happen. And then some the opportunity for a player to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a turn to plan what I want to do based off of the information that I have of what's coming up. It's, it's outstanding because it requires that the events are going to get played, mm -hmm. which gives it, again, like another layer of making it feel more evocative. Um, but also, I mean, from a player agency perspective and like just giving everybody something to look, you know, like kind of look, look toward, like when, mm -hmm. whether it's a matter of like selecting which, uh, kind of which actions they're going to be doing within a given turn or mm -hmm. whether it's a matter of like paying attention to other players during their turns, what their selections yep. are. Like everybody yep. is very involved the whole time. Yep. So yep. comparing that to kind of what, what the kind of the default would be felt like i don't know it's like the difference between throwing a bull bullet and firing it out of a gun like i just felt like this had a lot more just a little bit more kinetic we're like moving mm. but the main mm. thing is that you don't want the events to feel dry yeah. or like avoidable it's always weird when you're playing a game that has events and then you and they just play don't for like 20 minutes and none of them are getting triggered because yeah. it's just like no 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 it's just like Yep. Ops, ops, ops type thing. Uh, so I always find that like bizarre because then it's just like, well, now now we're in the sandbox for sure, but we're really not like using much of the sand. Like we're just kind of doing, it's just like a weird play area type of thing. So it's funny because like um, Dan Thoreau when he did the whole um, written series on Root um, recently was talking about how the cards in Root 
our characters and are their own faction. And I think that's sort of how I think about the events in um, the Bronx, because it's just like they are another faction to be negotiated with, to be planned around, that are going to be enacting and going to be taking the actions that you have to deal with. And a lot of it is just sort of mitigating what's going to happen, what is going to happen that you don't have that much control over, though you can, if you want to select that space, have a little bit of control over what it is that's going to happen. Um, I think there's a point when everybody realizes like, oh, maybe I do want to event which is, at first, you're just like, oh, there's no reason to take an event. But then you're like, oh, no, maybe I do want that event because I do want to be able to choose. And that's sort of, that's one of those things where you're looking at this card, you're looking at this moment in history, and it may not be something that you, your faction narrative says, um, this is what happened where you connected with there. Or it could be, but you're like, okay, I need to negotiate with this card, with this event that's about to happen to be able to achieve my what it is that I'm going to do. Um, and that sort of makes it just like playing with another, it's just a, like another player in the game. Yeah, and I, I can imagine that's really helpful too with the, to the earlier point of talking about the more abstract player roles like having mm-hmm. faces coming in to interact mm-hmm. with these abstract roles, right? Where it's just like, yep. this is a face that's kind of important in this given decade or in this era, yep. uh, part of the census. So so that's a really cool way to integrate that while still having the all the tensions of, you know, as, as individuals playing the game of kind of like a, of a more of a middle manager than a supreme manager. Yep. <laughs> um, <Yes>. Same <laughs> events, right? And we all know what middle management is like. <laughs> yeah, that, that's an interesting point, though. That the Dan the Dan Thoreau thing. Like, I, I I never would have thought of it quite like that. That guy, yeah. he's playing games on another level. I'm just like really interacting <laughs> everything, like line drive, just taking everything at face value. Yeah. It's wild. So, how far along are you in development right now? So the thing. What we were testing was the intro scenario, and that's pretty much because where we're at is um, learning materials. The game pretty much is rules complete. Um, We just are trying to think through the best ways of sort of getting new players into the game as quickly as possible um, and feeling as good about it as they possibly can. And so um, this is a scenario that we basically came up with just specifically for that task. And now we're sort of thinking through building all the learning materials around it so that this is like what people are introduced to. that's sort of where the stage that we're at. We're probably going to be doing the art, at start, starting on the art stuff at the beginning of the year. Um, start start having those conversations and stuff. Yeah, that's great. It's running pretty yeah. smooth now. Gotta say, um, thank is you. Is there another historical design you're actively working on right now? I know you have <laughs> probably a few things in the hopper, but um, let's see. What's the one that I'll talk about? <laughs> Um, I have one. I have one game, and I'm not gonna. I, you know the name, but I'm not gonna mention the name of it. But it's a game that's based off of um, uh, historical fiction, and it's sort of a really interesting space to start thinking about for. Um, games in general as historical gamers because historical games themselves are works of fiction, and it's funny how like when you start thinking like, oh, we're doing this work of fiction, but we don't want to necessarily do historical fiction or it starts getting into another sort of realm. But I think it's a really interesting space of just thinking through the possibilities of history, not necessarily from a, oh, um, could they have won this, you know, like, oh, if they had that one more tank, they would have been able to blow through <laughs> through the right. line type of perspective, but more from a, okay, um, 
let's took it like even on the sort of strategic level. Here's a situation. Here's a historical situation. Now let's imagine something that was impossible at the time, but or not necessarily impossible at the time, but it was really far from happening at the time. But we can look back at it and say, hey, this is something that could have had an impact. How are we going to see how that plays out in? And the best way for me to think about it is like, oh, a simulation of that would be great because you can sort of just sort of see if you're modeling in the same way that you're modeling history, you're giving sort of that same type of feedback of like, oh, this is a historical possibility. So I've got one design that's sort of working in that space that I'm working with somebody else on that is um, pretty far along. I'm feeling really good about it. Um, Hopefully next year I'll get to spend some good time with it. Very nice. Have you found that... um operating within that kind of um, adapting it from from sort of like fictional space versus uh, trying to make something that models like a historical event or series of historical events has been more <laughs> challenging for you less challenging so I, um, I I think it's been more challenging in some ways um, well I'd say the person I'm working with is the author of this um, is the author of a book. And so they've got their, and there's the characters are the thing that sort of um, really help bring the story to life. And they've got their idea of one, the characters and their whole historical arc, et cetera. But um, I basically took it from a gaming perspective. Like, okay, let's just sort of model this. Da, 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 da. And I'm having a conversation with them and I'm like, yeah, so A does this and B does that. And C, they're like, there's, there's that, that just didn't happen. And it's like, you know, like, <laughs> how is this possible? This is not what, this is not what happens. And I'm like, yeah, that's sort of the sandbox. And they're like, I love it. That's perfect. That's great. I love that you're doing. And so um, the challenge though, is that, um, I feel like when you have historical figures, um, one, you're fighting against the myth of who they are based off of all that history. Um, and you're fighting of uh, against the myth of overrepresenting what it is that they've done, especially in, in the context of a game. But when you're working with fictional characters, I feel like there's a little bit more room to allow their possibility to breathe um, that gives a little bit more player agency in the narrative you know it's not like oh you've got to play churchill like this or you've got to play um like this it's just like okay here's this character here's how they fit into this to this historical time and here are the things that here are the game rules around how you play with them and that sort of helps define how players emote them and watching that happen and live like watching that happen with players and that like breathe back the history itself is just sort of like a fascinating thing to see our thanks to taylor shuss justin facino and non-breaking space we're gonna close out with love find their music on bandcamp <laughs>